Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Micah, chapter 5. Let's join together in prayer. Father, you are amazing. Your gifts are astounding. We consider the most glorious gift, your Son, who is fairer, brighter, more beautiful, more amazing than anything we've ever experienced. Thank you. Thank you for these grace gifts. Thank you for your Spirit who opens our eyes and teaches us, who comforts our hearts in our turmoil, and who gives us the strength that we need to do what only you can do. Help us this morning as we continue to worship you, as we worship you in the word, humble our hearts, lift our gaze, and cause us to be those rejoicing ones who you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are events in our lives that change us. I remember the first day I walked into this church and all of the consummate things that have happened to me since that day and the way the Lord used um, my father-in-law, who wasn't my father-in-law at the time, uh, but the pastor of this church, ministering to me, directing me, mentoring me, meeting my to-be wife. Think about when your first child is born, and then each child after that, for some of us that's more than others. <laughs> these are life-changing events. Your life is never the same after these kinds of events. I remember the event of uh, my, my brother's passing. That is an event that changes you. There's no turning back from that. It changes you um, for the rest of your days. These are things that change us. There are many things we encounter in life that change us. But friends, there's nothing, there's nothing that changes us like our encounter with Jesus. When Jesus comes into our world, everything changes. He changes it. This is the glory of the gospel. And this gospel is what we celebrate day in and day out, that we have the grace that we need for life, that God's given us real life, life that will last eternally, the grace that comes through Jesus. He changes everything. Last week, in our study of Micah 5, we noted that the ultimate ruler is coming. And we saw in those six verses, verses 1 through 6, what this ruler is like. He is the ultimate significance, though he came from an insignificant place. He is the ultimate salvation, though the people were facing oppression. He is the ultimate shepherd, though they had been afflicted. And with all the turmoil all about them, this coming ruler is the ultimate security. We learned about what this ruler was like. As we turn our attention to the last portion of Micah 5, what we'll note is what this ultimate ruler will do when he comes. Take a look beginning in verse 7 of Micah chapter 5. What will this ultimate ruler do? 
says, beginning in verse 7, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. Your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck up, or I will pluck, your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities, and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury, and on the nations, excuse me, on the nations that have not heard. Now we read this earlier in our scripture reading in the ESV because there are some clarifications that come forth. But notice, it, it sounds very heavy, and it sounds, it sounds really oppressive in some ways, but this really is a message of hope. It's incredible what, what he really is telling us here, the change that takes place when this ultimate ruler comes. When this ultimate ruler comes, he's going to change everything, so much so that uh, everything about their lives is different. Notice the first word in verse 7, the word then, then. You see, he just told us about the, the coming of this ultimate ruler. He says he was going to come out of Ephraim, uh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and, and he was going to come forth and he was going to rule. But what we notice is this. When, when he comes, when he came the first time, he came to lay down his life as a lamb. This is what we've seen thus far of Jesus coming. But what he also refers to in these passages is a, a second advent. When he comes again, not the second time as a, a lamb, but a second time as a lion. One who will set up his kingdom. A kingdom that will rule the entire globe. A, a universal kingdom. One that covers every sphere of this known world. As we notice this, as we look through this passage, what we want to notice is this. What kinds of changes take place when that kingdom comes? What kind of changes takes place? We're going to note seven changes. We'll do this briefly. Uh, these, these are concepts that we've already touched on on a couple of occasions as we've gone through this book, this glorious book of Micah. But the first change that we want to note that will take place is that the ultimate ruler, a reference to Jesus, will make his people a blessing. The ultimate ruler will make his people a blessing. Look again at verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob, these are the ones that, that from all the disasters they've ensued and all the things that came upon them, these are the ones that knew the Lord, the one that God preserved. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people. So they'll be, they'll be in the midst of all the world. And what will they be like? They'll be like dew from the Lord. They'll be like showers on the grass that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. When he says like dew and like showers, this is not a bad thing. If you think about living in an arid location where everything's dry, well, when there's dew on the grass in the morning, this is helpful. And when the showers come down, this brings blessing. 
And so what he's telling us is, is when this ruler comes, the people of Israel will no longer be the oppressed or afflicted. Instead, they'll be a blessing. Instead of being the outcast, they'll be a blessing. The whole world will, will look and they'll be benefited by the people of Israel. Rather than being lame, as he mentions in chapter 4 and verse 6, they are a blessing. The, the last clause of verse 7 is very important. It says, those that do and those showers don't tarry for man, nor wait for the sons of men. You know what that means? It means you can't bring these blessings about. It's not like Israel will decide, I want to be a blessing to everyone. Let's bless these people. We'll bless these people. We'll bless those people. It doesn't come about by man's hands. This is a supernatural work. There's divine activity. When the kingdom comes, when the king himself rules, this ultimate ruler, he's going to change Israel so that instead of being oppressed, afflicted, and lame, there'll be a blessing. It comes from his own hand. This concept of God's people being a blessing is another way in which the coming kingdom will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Now, you remember the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis chapter 12? He says, you shall be a blessing. You shall be a blessing. And this is God's people being a blessing. Who does this? Did they be, decide to become a blessing? No. The ultimate ruler, when he comes, he's going to make them a blessing. So the ultimate ruler will make his people a blessing. Secondly, as we move through the text a little bit more, the ultimate ruler will make his people prominent. Verse 8 and the remnant of Jacob, same people, shall be among the Gentiles, just like they were among many peoples in verse 7. It's a parallel situation. They'll be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples. They'll be like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. What is he, what's he saying here? Well, let me ask you a question. If you're a sheep, do you mess with a lion? If you're a, a child, do you mess with a lion? You don't mess with a lion. What is he saying? He's, he's saying they'll be prominent. They'll be magnificent. And this, again, is something that God let us know. You know, in, in chapter 4, we saw what the people's current condition was. He says in, in chapter 4 and verse 6, In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. We already talked about the lame. And I will gather the outcast. The outcast, he calls them. Well, here, outcast is opposite of what? Prominent. So here you are, you mean nothing, you belong over there, we don't want you to now look at, at that thing, the lion. It's regal, it's, it's, it's royal, it's, it's amazing, it's something that's breathtaking. In the Mosaic Covenant, if the people fulfilled their end of the bargain, if they fulfilled their end of the covenant, God says he would make them the head and not the tail. You know what that means? I will raise you up to prominence. And here we have, in Micah chapter 5, something of that indication here. But I want to ask you a question. How did they do at fulfilling that covenant? How did they do at fulfilling the Mosaic covenant? They, they, they obeyed all the time. They really struggled. Just like we struggle to obey the law, the truth of the word, we, we struggle with this. The only way obedience to the law takes place and the consummate blessings is when God does that work. You see, here he says, if, if uh, in that day when the ultimate ruler comes, I'm going to rise you, raise you up into prominence, like a lion amongst the beasts of the field. He's the, the king of the forest, right? Every, every animal would, would kind of cow down, cow-tow down to a lion. He's prominent. 
Notice how this only happens when the king comes because of Israel's own accord, they became the tail rather than the head. But when Jesus comes, he turns everything upside down. He takes them from being lame to a blessing. He takes them from being an outcast to prominent. As we move a little further in the text, he takes them from being uh, the doormat, really, to dominant. It says that the ultimate ruler is what we want to note. The ultimate ruler will make his people dominant. Look at verse 9. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. Well, God's people, God's people have been afflicted, haven't they? And that's not ending anytime soon unless the Lord comes back. But when he does come back, this ultimate ruler, this one who is the prince of peace, this one who is the king of kings, this one who is the, the ultimate shepherd and the ultimate security, when he comes, he's going to bring forth a kingdom that will, will set aside all that opposition. It, 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 instead of conflict, there's peace. This is what happens. And the people of God will rule this kingdom of peace. All war will be cut off. This is what will happen when the Lord Jesus comes at the second advent. One battle, then peace. God's people will no longer be afflicted, but dominant. As we follow further in the text, he, he even brings more of this change. We, we are, we're noticing change. When the ultimate ruler comes, he doesn't just leave things the way they are. When he comes, he changes everything from from lame to blessing, right? From outcast to prominent, from insecure, from a doormat to dominant. Now a fourth area of change that this ultimate ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ, will take from the text. The ultimate ruler will strip his people's senseless faith in military might. I think if, if you were to really isolate down, this is probably at the heart of the text. There's one other section that might vie for dominance in this passage. When he comes, he's going to strip his people's senseless faith in military might. Look at verses 10 and 11. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst. Does that mean well, no more animals for you? That's not the idea. He gets, gives more clarity in the rest. It says, and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. He's not talking about literally there's no more horses. Horses are no good. They're evil. We're going to get rid of the horses. That's not the concept. He says you're not going to need horses and chariots. You're not going to need strongholds anymore. When I come, I'm stripping you of all your reliance upon anything other than me. And one of the things that we as a people become very reliant on is our own ability to defend ourselves. Now, we could can, can make all kinds of applications to this. Just think about it when someone attacks you from a, I'm not talking physically now, but just they attack your character. What do you, what's your natural response? Okay, I want to tell you all my character. I want, I want, to, I want to fight this with, with truth. Look at I did this, this, and this. This is what we do. We, we defend ourselves. God says, you don't need to defend yourselves. I'll take care of this. Stop relying on your own ingenuity. Stop worrying about how you can defend yourselves. I'll take care of you. Well, as we consider this concept of horses and chariots, it's written regularly in the Old Testament. I want to just point a couple of them out. They'll be on the screen behind me. In Deuteronomy chapter 
17 and verse 16, the Bible says this, Only he must not, speaking of the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. Why is he saying don't get horses? Is there something wrong with a horse? No. There's nothing wrong with a horse. Horses are beautiful. Horses are majestic. Horses are wonderful. There's nothing wrong with horses unless you rely on them, unless they become your God, unless this is what will protect me. Here's the golden image that took us out of Egypt. This is what I trust in. That's when it becomes a problem, not the instrument itself or the the animal itself. In Isaiah 31.1, the Bible says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on, what does it say? Horses. Rely on horses. So he's not talking about just horses as an intrinsic animal. He's talking about relying upon them as your military might. Who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel and consult the Lord. He's giving us an idea as we look at these passages that talk about horses and chariots. The concept is this. Don't trust in anything other than the Lord. Don't, don't let that become what is your military stronghold. In this book of Psalms, the psalmist wrote this in Psalm 20 in verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is, this is the concept. Take a look at Zechariah 9 for just a moment. Hold your hand here. We're going to come right back. But Zechariah 9. Zechariah is to the right, by the way. You're in Micah. You'll go through Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. <laughs> like that? Some good Hebrew names. Zechariah. Chapter 9. Most of you, if you go to church on special days, like Palm Sunday, you'll recognize Zechariah 9.9. Listen to what it says. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Listen. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horses, or excuse me, and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, where he talks about horses and chariots, he's talking about armament. He's talking about relying on military force. And he says, I want to take all that away. Not because I don't like horses, not because I don't like chariots, not because uh, cities are bad or strongholds are bad. He says, you've turned them into your God. You think they save you. So when the ultimate ruler comes, he's going to cut off military might and their reliance upon military might. Cities and strongholds, he says in verse 10, or verse 11, he talks about cities and strongholds. and It's reference, again, to taking defensive measures. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there anything wrong today? And was there anything wrong back in this day, in Micah's day, anything wrong with taking defensive measures? Should you learn self-defense? Is there something wrong with learning self-defense? Or should you just say, well, I'll just take one for the team. They can come, they can mug me, it'll be fine. I'll just trust in God. Now, I don't, I don't think, I think we always trust in the Lord, but I think we can also take defensive measures. Do you lock your, your doors before you go to bed at night? Do you lock the windows? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you check, maybe you have like five bolts on your door. You really, maybe you have a security system. Is there something wrong with having defensive measures? No, unless that's what we're trusting in. When the defensive measure becomes our, our surety, that's when we've made the mistake. 
And God says, when I come, when the ultimate ruler comes, I'm taking all of that away. You can either trust in your measures or you can trust in God. And he says, I'm, I'm going to remove the possibility of you trusting in anything but me. This is a good day that he's talking about. Because listen, right now, you and I still have all these choices to make. Will I trust in my own military might? Will I trust in all my defenses that I make? Will, will I trust in the things that I'm doing? Or will I trust in the Lord? We have got decisions to make. When the ultimate ruler comes and he rules the earth and he, and he takes his people and he takes control of his people, there's no more choices. The, the horses are gone. The chariots are gone. The strongholds are gone. gone the, the, the defended cities are gone. It's you've got me or you've got nothing. He's eliminating the options for them. This is what happens when Jesus enters our world. It's, it's him or, or we have nothing. Now, this is offensive to some. In fact, just yesterday I talked with a young man, felt terrible for him. He said, you know, you, you just told me that I've got, I'm worthless. You told me I'm, I'm helpless. I said, well, I, I never said you were worthless. I didn't say that at all. Not, nothing even close to that. What I said is, you need Christ. That's what I said. You need Christ. I feel terrible for someone that, that thinks that's a bad option. What I want to tell you is that's enough. To tell you that you need Christ, this is the best thing you could ever have. Having Christ means having God. Having God means having life. Having life means having eternity with God. There's nothing better than this. This is good news, friends, not bad news. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. The good news is when that ultimate ruler comes, what he's going to do is he's going to make his people a blessing. What he's going to do is he's going to make his people prominent. What he's going to do is he's going to make his people dominant. What he's going to do is he's going to strip them, his people, from faith and military might and anything that might distract them. Fifthly, this ultimate ruler will eliminate his people's absurd faith in spirits. Look at verse 12. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. What's he talking about? He's talking about people that... that that consult with spirits to get information. Today, maybe that's tarot card reading or palm reading or interpreting the stars, horoscopes, all the other stuff. You, you, know, you know all the, the things that people go to try to figure out what, what's going to happen to me. Can I have some form of safety, some form of security, some form of information? I need some direction. You know what God says? I, I'm going to eliminate the competition. There will be no more of that nonsense. That stuff doesn't, doesn't get you anywhere. I've let you try your way. You've exhausted yourself trying to find ways to, to make your life make sense and to, and to feel contentment. You've exhausted yourself in this. I'm not going to allow you any more competition. I'm going to give you the only thing that really matters. When the ultimate ruler comes, he's going to eliminate their absurd faith in spirits. Sixthly, the ultimate ruler will remove his people's ill-conceived faith in idols going to pause here for a second. I want you to think about that. When the ultimate ruler comes, he's going to remove or eliminate his people's ill-conceived faith in idols. Look at verses 13 and 14. Your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred poles from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst and I will destroy your cities. He's talking about things that they made, handmade, handcrafted, man-made things that they used as worship. 
Now, when he talks in verse 13 about carved images and sacred poles, there's a reference to the Baals. When you talk about Baal worship, now we're talking about male prostitution and things like this, very uncomfortable, very disgusting things happening there. And then as you get to the next verse, he says, I will pluck your wooden images in the ESV. It properly interprets this or translates it, Asherah poles. Now this is talking about female reproduction and all these things. So he's talking about the, this, these pagan worship systems that they've created, man-made created worship situations where they've made particular images and, and idols to help, help them in the process of their worship. God says, I'm going to eliminate all that. These ill-conceived ideas of, uh, of what worship really is, uh, no more of that. Now friends, again, I, I think this is really important because what, I, what we have to notice is a particular recurrence in this text. I will. I will. I will. And who's the I? It's God himself. Ultimately, the ultimate ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to do this. Why is that so significant? Well, because God had told them not to do these things. God had told them not to do these things. And you know what they did? They did them. Listen to what the book of Exodus 34:13 says. We've in the law. The people have just received the, the, the Ten Commandments. Con, uh, subsequently, Moses broke the tablets because he was not so happy with their idol worship while he was on the mountain. And God says, bring me two more tablets of stones. And in the process, God utters these words. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. That's the same word, asherim, asherah poles. You shall cut out all the idolatry. This is what God told them to do in Exodus 34, which predates Micah by a number of hundreds of years. How did they do? How did they do with that? God issued the command, don't do this. Get rid of all that idolatry, all that pagan worship. Get out rid of all of it. How'd they do? Not very well. Not very well. They did not fulfill the command. But when we get to Micah chapter 5, he doesn't say, hey, don't worship these idols. He doesn't say, get rid of your horses and your chariots. He doesn't say, get rid of these cities and these strongholds. He doesn't say, get rid of the soothsayers. Get rid of the sorceries. And get rid of the idolatry. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to do it. Friends, this is the essence of Christianity. What? Horses and cities and, 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 and poles that people used to worship? No. The fact that what God prescribes, we cannot do. It feels very helpless. If you've tried for any length of time to be religious, you found yourself frustrated, haven't you? You're like, man... I want to I be nice to my wife, and I want to be nice to my kids, and, and I want to I do good things to my neighbor when they yell at me, and I want to I, I be right at work. I want to do all these things. We, we, we know all the right things to do, and we find ourselves pretty miserable when we don't do it. God says, hey, listen, I'm going I'm to take, take this out of the equation here. Instead of me telling you what to do, because you know now what to do, I'm just going to do it for you. How about that? This is what happens when the king comes. When the king comes, 
He does it. What they could not do and would not do, God would do for them. This is what we know as the gospel. We cannot fulfill the demands of the law. And from our desperate position, and from our desperate condition of failure and sin, God, through Jesus, fulfilled the demands of the law, and is willing, he's willing to attribute to our account perfect righteousness that Jesus Christ himself attained. What God said is, Here, this, is this is what righteousness looks like. His son came along and did every single one of those so that when I come to know Jesus as my Savior, everything Jesus did that was righteous is placed on my account. Just like everything sinful that I did was placed on his account, he became sin for me, even though we knew no sin. So I might become the righteousness of God through him. This is the essence of biblical Christianity. What we cannot do, God does for us. And we have it in Micah chapter 5. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, we see gospel. Because the gospel is from the beginning to the end of the scriptures. Because the gospel is the essence of biblical Christianity. When God saves us through the gospel, he roots out our idolatry that once dominated us. Listen to the last portion of Paul's description of the the conversion of the Thessalonians. Listen listen to what it says. It'll be on the screen behind me. He's He's giving a testimony for the Thessalonians. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So in other words, he, he was coming across people from all over the world, and they said, hey, those people in Thessalonica, this is what's going on with them. And this is what the, the people that Paul came in contact with were saying about the Thessalonians. And it says, they turned from idol, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So what happened? These people, the Thessalonians, they, they were pagan worshipers. They, they were idol worshipers. And, and when the gospel came to them, it profited them because they believed the gospel. And the gospel changed them. So that instead of worshiping idols as they had previously, they turned away from idols and they turned to God. This is the testimony that they had. Who does this? Did, did they become really good people? They said, oh, oh, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll do this instead. It doesn't work that way, friends. Try to turn away from a sin. Give it a shot, just on your own. You'll do really well with it for two weeks. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe you might get a couple of days in. You're not going to sustain righteous behavior. You won't. Not of your, own, of your own accord. It's impossible. But you know who can? The one who prescribed it in the first place can supply what you need. And that's what we have in Micah chapter 5. That's what we have in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Remember, an idol is anything that we put where only God belongs. And so what God says is when the ultimate ruler comes, he's going to get rid of all the idols. He'll strip strip them of their ill-conceived reliance upon idols and their faith in idols. Well, as we come to the last verse in Micah chapter 5, one more change. The ultimate ruler will put an end to all rebellion. The ultimate ruler will put an end to all rebellion. Look at verse 15. And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. Now that's what we have in our New King James, and it's not a good translation. The word Shema does, you can translate it heard, but that's not the idea. The idea isn't just the audible hearing of it. The idea of the Shema 
in Hebrew is that you hear, understand, and take heed to it. It's obedience, which is why our ESV has um, did not obey. He'll take vengeance on those who did not obey. Now, what's the concept of obedience here? Well, first of all, I'm going to give you two, two concepts of what this obedience means. First of all, they were oppressing, making lame, and afflicting God's people. So there's, there's a, a visible um, demonstration of their lack of obedience, but there's a spiritual root to it. So there were, were activities, human activities, that indicated their lack of obedience to God. That's not the source of the judgment here. The source of the judgment goes further. There are three times in the New Testament, three times in the New Testament, that God uses the phrase, obey the gospel. Obey the gospel. I just want to show you them. They'll be on the screen behind me. And I want you to think about what it means to not obey the gospel. It says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. In other words, they heard the gospel, so they, they you know, audibly heard it, but they didn't, they didn't shema. They didn't hear, heed, and obey it. So there was a disobedience to the gospel in Romans 10. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, the Bible says this, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, this concept of obeying the gospel. The gospel comes and they say, no! God says that that results in, in judgment. Peter then uses the phrase in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So again, obey the gospel. They disobey the gospel. Judgment starts here, and it moves out from there to those who don't obey the gospel. What does he mean? What does the gospel say? Does, it, does the gospel say, be a good boy, and God will accept you? That's the way many religions look at what gospel is. It's, well, Jesus did this, and you do this, and between the two things, we'll all be everything be fine. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The gospel says, come. And the Bible says, all who come to me, I will in no wise, what? Cast out. I won't do it. I won't cast them out. The gospel says, come, and people say, what? No. The gospel says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And the people say, no. No, that, that's not in line with my thinking. I don't like that. It's too exclusive. It's too narrow. I don't believe in that stuff. That's for someone else. It's fine for them if they want to believe it. Of course, they don't really think that. But that's another matter altogether. The gospel says come. The gospel says believe. And people say no. That's disobeying the gospel. The question for you is, are, is that the situation you're in? God says, hey, listen. You're a sinner. What do you say to that? What do you say to that? You ever, you ever do anything wrong? You ever break the law? You ever disrespect an authority? You ever get angry? You ever get frustrated? You ever swear? You, you know, you ever do that? Do you ever break the law, God's law in some way? Everyone would have to say yes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so we say yes, I, I agree with that. The gospel says Jesus 
died for those sinful actions, those sinful attitudes, those responses. Jesus died for that. He became sin for us. And he hung on a cross, bearing the wrath of God for my sin. The gospel says Jesus paid it all. The gospel says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. What does that mean? Well, instead of a record that is really, really long. Do you have any sinful things on your record? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I'm not proud of this, but I have a really long sinful record. Okay? I wouldn't want it, dis- it disclosed to you. That list rolled down there, all these things. Instead of that one, because that's been canceled, it's the sin debt has been canceled, been transferred to Jesus, all the things that he has done, remember when he obeyed the law? When he kept the feasts? Remember when he, when he obeyed the Father? He, his meat was to do the Father's will and to finish his work. Remember all those things he did? That righteousness that he accrued? When I come to know Jesus as my Savior, when I trust him, all those things are on my record the gospel says you can be righteous on Christ's account. Because of Christ, you can be righteous. What do you say to that? You say, no. No, I think I'm pretty good. My good outweighs my bad. That, that's what, how many people have you talked to? That's what they say. My good outweighs my bad. I'm, yeah, listen, I'm, I'm, I live a pretty good life. I try really hard. I, I'm nice to people. You know, I, I don't try to hurt anybody. This is what they say. This is their standard of righteousness. If their standard was the standard, then they'd be in good shape. The problem is it's not, they're not the judge. I don't say that gleefully. I don't, I don't like, I'm, not, I'm not like smiling, thinking, well, this poor person, they think that they're fine and they're not. I don't think that's great. I'm sad for them. They're not the judge. They don't make the determination of what the standard is. If it's their standard, then hey, everything's great. But there is another judge. There's a judge that matters, the one that, that makes the final decision on these things. And you know what his decision is? Perfect righteousness. That's what comes. Perfect righteousness. The only thing that's getting to heaven. If you're a liar, you're doomed. Unless, unless the righteous record of Jesus gets placed on your account. And when you stand before God, you are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And your record says only righteousness all the time. Then, then you're safe. Then you're holy. Then you're really Righteous. This is a transaction. It only takes place by God. Listen, when Jesus enters, everything changes. What does that mean? Well, he takes all of my sin and he gives me all of his righteousness. This is what we need. It's the only thing that will help. To rebel against God's provision is to embrace your own understanding and your own provision. While we look for these elements of change in a glorious future kingdom. You know, we look at all these things that are going to take place. There won't be any more wars, no more need for strongholds, no more sorceries, no more idolatry, no more enemies. That's good. We look for these things in a future glorious kingdom. That's a happy thing. Jesus himself will rule. That's good. We also notice, friends, that some of these apply, many of these principles apply to our own spiritual experience right now. God intends his church to be a blessing and a light He wants us to trust him, not our own resources. He wants us to come to him, not man-made substitutes. He wants us to be, um, in all our ways, to be obedient to the gospel. He wants us to be obedient to the gospel. Are you a Christian? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Yes? If you have, you know that God still wants you to obey the gospel? What does that mean? 
what does it mean for a Christian, someone who's already trusted Christ, to obey the gospel? You know, friends, this is of utmost importance to us as a believer. We, we already know that we can't come to God and please Him for salvation, right? This is very well, we're well aware of this. We've been schooled in the gospel that way. But the gospel for daily life, obeying the gospel today, is to recognize that my good works and my good efforts, my own obedience doesn't make me pleasing in God's sight, even as a Christian. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please Him. He that comes to God must believe that He is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know what it means for a Christian to obey the gospel? It's to say, dear God, I know I've got nothing to offer. If real righteousness is going to be demonstrated today, it's going to be your righteousness. See, God has already made us positionally righteous. When God looks at me, I'm holy already. I'm holy. The Bible says, as the chosen of God, you are holy and beloved. He loves me already. To the nth degree, there's nothing changing that. I'm already holy. My condition has been eternally change. It's beautiful. But you know, obeying the gospel means that my, my everyday countenance and my interaction with others will then also reflect that righteousness and that only happens through the work of Jesus Christ in me right now. Obeying the gospel is to say, God, I, I know if, if I'm going to be righteous today, if I'm going to be do the right thing right now, it's going to be by surrendering my heart and mind to your spirit. Obedience to the gospel as a believer is walking in the Spirit. Obedience to the gospel is allowing God's grace to reign supremely in my life. It's to really, uh, what Brian read as we opened up, is to allow Christ to have preeminence in my life. But what does it mean for an unbeliever to embrace the gospel? Well, we just talked about it, right? Recognizing that you're a sinner and that a sinner needs to call out upon the name of the Lord. And when a person calls on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. Here's, here's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. You'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So for, for, for those of you that maybe you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, maybe, maybe you don't know what it is to have a relationship with God that is eternally changing, what God says is, call upon the name of the Lord today. You see, when the Lord Jesus comes, when he enters our world, everything changes. That's what, what he says in Micah chapter 5. He's talking about Israel's fortunes. Everything changes from lame to blessed and a blessing. From an outcast to prominent. From a doormat to dominant and prominent. When, when the Lord Jesus comes and enters their world, instead of relying upon anything man-made, whether it be military might, or spirits and sorcerers, or it be something along the lines of idolatry, all of it fails. Jesus removes it. Because he must be Lord. And he will be Lord in the life of the one who calls upon him. He will be Lord. He will change everything, just like he will Israel's fortunes. One day, we look forward to that day, but we also recognize that right now he's doing the very same thing in our own lives, stripping us of every self-reliance. If he's not stripping you of your self-reliance, what's getting in the way? What's getting in the way 
of you being stripped of your self-reliance. It's called surrender, friend. It's called surrender. Will you just turn it over and say, Lord, my way is not fruitful. My way is not getting the job done. I want what you have to offer me. I find it to be enough. You know what will happen? He'll take care of it. Because that's the supernatural side of it. He does what we could never do. Let's ask him to help us with this. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you've given us truth. Your word is truth. And we know that your word as truth sanctifies us. It makes us set apart. It, it makes us holy. We ask that you'd help us to surrender our hearts and minds to you. I pray for each believer, myself included, that we would not allow any self-reliance to get in the way of the work that the Lord Jesus can and will do in our lives. I pray for anyone here that's never trusted Jesus, that they would recognize that they can have life and have it more abundantly through him. Help them not to disobey the gospel, but to come, to turn their eyes upon Jesus, to allow him to be their affection, their hunger, their thirst, and what satisfies. We pray that you do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.